another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Dictated a little bit differently today, you could probably already tell by the better audio quality that I am in my home office today, uh, recovering from my trip to the Bug Out location up in Hot Springs, Arkansas. So today, being home, what we're going to do is a listener call and show. I have a huge backlog of calls. I'm only going to be able to knock about eight of them out today, but I figured it'd be a good day to do that, and I'll try, as I've said in the past, to uh, keep doing more of these shows. I love to do shows like this where you guys call in, you guys tell me what you're looking to hear or questions and things you want answers on, because then I know I'm giving you exactly what you want. So uh, before we take the first call today, let me go ahead and do the house cleaning. Number one, I have some sad news today, folks. Um, due to some uh, a need in, in the family for uh, Dan Tanner's wife, and uh, the person who was donating the property also not being available at the same time for another thing that came up, we are going to have to cancel the Region 5 bug out get-together. And uh, I'm kind of bummed about that. And uh, hopefully it doesn't put anybody out too much, but I guess things do happen. So um, the surgery that Dan's wife has to have is not, like, major uh, life-altering or anything. But, you know, when anybody has surgery, it's a big deal. So please be thinking of them over Memorial Day weekend and wishing them well. And uh, let's see if we can put something else together. Um, I was thinking about doing something that weekend and just saying, hey, come on down, maybe doing some fishing down on the coast. But uh, talking to my wife, if we're going to cancel a big event, we may end up going right back to Arkansas uh, just because a lot of things that we got kind of started we'd like to finish up there. So I'll let you know by the end of the week whether I'm going to set up a fishing trip uh, for Memorial Day weekend or not. Um, but let's try to put some stuff together. Maybe what we need to do in the future with our regional events is uh, make them a little bit smaller and a little less involved uh getting people together, and if they're going to be big, let's make them in a way that if one or two people get disrupted, it doesn't shut the event down, because that's we put too much weight on one guy here, folks, that's that's really what happened, so sorry to say that that event is canceled, I uh, wanted to let everybody know on the air as soon as I had confirmed it, uh, and that was uh, Thursday afternoon, so I didn't do a show Friday, anyway, and it's already been posted on the forum, uh, Good note, though, I guarantee you Wilderness Way 09 will not be canceled, canceled or Dirt Time 09 will not be canceled. So come on out to San Bernardino, California. Um, that event's big enough that uh, I don't think anything could cancel it short of a forest fire. And they'd probably just relocate it if that happened. So anyway, um, come on out to Dirt Time 09. I'll put a link in the forum with information about that. Uh, again, that's San Bernardino, California, last week in August. Uh, check out the sponsors. They're in the right-hand margin of our site. Uh, today's sponsor today of the day is uh, Tactical Response Gear, James Jaeger's operation. Great guy. Uh, really has done a lot for the prepper community uh, in, in time, effort, and energy. Uh, so check out his operation. And uh, I think that will wrap up the house cleaning for today. We're going to keep it brief. I want to get right into the call. So let's go ahead and take that first call. Hey, this is Jetta again up in Wyoming. Um, I'm sitting here enjoying another nice spring snowstorm, and got me thinking about my favorite hobby, which is brewing. Uh, I've been brewing beer pretty hard for about two years now, so I got all that down. Um, I want to start branching out into the wine, and I would like to know just your basic recipe 
for your uh, blackberry mead wine. I, I like to do it with the honey. I got honey to where I use. So I just like to know your basic recipe, what you throw all in together, and just that information. Thanks. Bye. Well, Jetta, that's a great question and a subject that's near and dear to my heart. Pretty easy one to answer. Um, mead's a pretty simple thing to make. The biggest thing with mead is it gets up to a fairly high alcohol content, and there's not a lot of nutrients in honey. And even when you add something like blackberries, uh, there's not a lot of nutrients for the yeast in blackberries. So it's really a good idea to use some yeast nutrient. And I'll give you my basic recipe for kind of a, a light blackberry mead uh, for a five-gallon batch, which is pretty standard. You can scale it up or down based on this. It's really just about uh, 12 pounds of honey and about eight pounds of blackberries. And, and that's really the uh, the key ingredients. You want to use a really good um, wine yeast or uh, spe- specifically uh, a mead yeast, one or the other. You can control how sweet your mead's going to be by using either a uh, yeast that's designed to ferment at very high alcohol levels or one that kind of peters out a little bit low. If you want to make this sweet, you're probably better off making it a still mead because when you once you have the uh, yeast peter out, it's going to be a little bit difficult to get carbonation out of it. But if you use a, uh, a yeast that's designed to make this into a dry mead or a dry wine, a very high uh, tolerant yeast, you'll be able to, uh, to, to uh, when you bottle this, go ahead and carbonate it pretty much the same way that you do beer, and that's usually with the use of corn sugar. I don't like to use corn sugar in mead, though, even for uh, for making it sparkling, so another two-third cup of honey right at bottling time will get that done. Let me give you kind of the, I know you know what you're doing uh, from what you've said, so you probably, with that, can go ahead and knock this out, but let me kind of give the process for people that, that, uh, that are not familiar with making beer or mead, what you would do here. Uh, number one, unlike beer, you're not going to boil this. If you boil it, you're going to set the pectin in the fruit, and it's going to make it cloudy, and even honey is not really good. You don't really want to boil that. What you want to do is you want to heat your water to near boiling, where it's steaming uh, quite aggressively if you have a thermometer, Heat it up into the 180 to 190 degree range. Hold it in that temperature by adjusting your uh, heat up and down. At that point, begin adding your honey. Slowly incorporate your 12 pounds of honey. Once you get it all incorporated, bring that temperature back up to that 180, 190 degree uh, mark. You can push it up near 200 at this point, actually. Then go ahead and add your blackberries. You're going to want to hold your blackberries at that temperature. So it's going to drop. Every time you add something, your temperature is going to drop. So when you throw your blackberries in, it's going to drop again. Bring the temperature back up to that uh, that 180, 190 degree uh, range. Keep it there with the blackberries in it for, oh, I'd say at least about 10 minutes is about how long I'll do that. I do not let it boil. Again, if you set the fruit pectin, it's going to make your meat cloudy and you're not going to be happy with it. And you can really honestly bring this up in the 160, 170 degree range, 10 minutes of that, and you'll pretty much kill off anything that uh, that could possibly be in those blackberries that could kind of ruin your meat. If you do the lower temperature, hold it a little bit longer. Again, do not boil it. Once you're done with that, take um, your, your fermented must, or your must now, add that to your fermenter, uh, top it up with water to your five gallon mark, good clean purified water. And, uh, once it's, it settles down to a uh, temperature below, uh, about 90 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when you go ahead and pitch your yeast, add your yeast mix to it. Stall an airlock and allow it to ferment. It's gonna take varying times depending on the temperature and exactly how much you used of everything and how good your yeast is to ferment. But it's usually gonna take 
a very long time to get through its first uh, fermentation. And you're going to want to, unlike beer where you just might ferment it and then bottle it, you're going to want what's called rack it. You move it from, a, from one fermenter to another fermenter. You might want to do that two or three times, allowing it to clear out. Adding a little bit of Irish moss right when you uh, right after you pitch your yeast, uh, or I'm sorry, right, right after you are finished with your boiling process, uh, using some Irish moss will help with clarification, but it's going to take a while for it to clarify. Once it clarifies, you can then go ahead and bottle it, and that's really all you do is wait for it to clarify. You can finish out aging uh, in the uh, in the bottle. By the time it clarifies, it's probably done with its fermentation. You can go ahead and use your hydrometer to take specific gravity. I've never done that. If the air if the airlock is not bubbling at all, and uh, the meat is clear, as far as I'm concerned, it's done. I may shake it, stir it up a little bit. Uh, I know it's hard to do that when you have a nice clear mead. Or go ahead and rack it another time uh, to make sure that it's, you know, watch the airlock. There's no more uh, fermentation because if you don't want it carbonated, the last thing you want is to continue fermenting in the bottle. That said, this mead is excellent carbonated. It makes a, an amazing uh, kind of like a sparkling wine. If you want to make it more like a big, heady Ziffendale, up your blackberries to about uh, 10 to 12 pounds. Uh, go pound for pound with the honey, 12 pounds honey, 12 pounds blackberries. you get a much deeper, uh, richer uh, uh, melamol is exactly what this really is. It's not really a meat. It's not really a wine. It's a melamol, which is a, a wine using honey and fruit together. And uh, it's, it's phenomenal. The longer you age it, the better it will get. So that's kind of the process there. Uh, I guess it's a little mini show on how to make mead. Uh, but great question. Thanks for asking it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's David calling from the United Kingdom. I was listening to an economist called Wayne Jett uh, today talking about the possibility of replacing the U.S. federal tax system with a fair tax system. Um, just wondering what your take was on this because it kind of seems a bit too good to be true. Thanks very much for the show. Really enjoy it. Cheers. Bye. Well, number one, thanks for calling all the way from the U.K. It's really cool to have people uh, listening to the show all over the world. And um, as to your question, it sounds too good to be true because it is too good to be true. We've been talking about this fair tax thing over here for a long time, and uh, it's a very small fringe element that's interested in it. And I have my concerns that it may not be that much better of a system, but it's got to be better than what we have now. It would eliminate the IRS. You really wouldn't need an IRS anymore. The oversight body would be very minimal if we had a fair tax and basically what a fair tax is, is is prescribed, and I hate the term fair tax because I don't know if there's anything fair about being taxed, but um, it would be a sales tax. It wouldn't touch your income. You could make as much money as you want, and you keep 100% of your money. You not only would not pay uh, federal income tax, you would not pay uh, into Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid any longer either. That said, the tax is somewhere in the neighborhood of 30%. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's be so you go out and you buy something for $1,000, you pay your state uh, your state sales tax if your state has sales tax on it, but then you would pay another $300 per $1,000 spent on this fair tax, which would be basically a national sales tax. Now, the reality is that the accountants got out their calculators and figured this out to be about the 22% equivalent because you don't pay tax on the money and then spend it. You earn the money, keep all the money, and then you buy stuff. And uh, when you buy stuff, that tax is uh, is coming out secondary. So somehow they say it's 22%. To me, 30% is 30%. Now, before you like freak out and go, 30%, oh, my God. 
Here's the mitigating circumstances. Number one, right now you're paying 14% in Social Security taxes. 14%. You don't realize that because your employer matches the 75 that you pay. So there's 14% on income right there because if your employer wasn't paying it, he would have it and we would see wages increase all across the country uh, when we when employers no, no longer had to match Social Security. And it would happen overnight, but it would happen relatively quickly because the employers that want good people would start raising the pay quickly to attract new talent, and eventually the whole market would come up that 7.5% or close to it. Um, so And you'd stop paying your 75 So there's 14%. So we're almost halfway to the 30 then you have to look at your federal tax bracket. Last year, after everything I could do, every deduction I could make, I still paid like 18%. So for me, I'm over 30% right there on income, and I got taxed on the money I saved, not just the money I spent. So I would have made out better with this. So to me, is it fair? It's fair to me. Um, lower income people may not think this thing's so fair. Um, but that's my maybe why it is fair, because people that are making $20,000 a year are going to pay an equal share. This is some of the other good stuff about the fair tax. Um, it is only charged once at the point of sale. And what that means is if I'm in a business and I manufacture a widget and I sell it to a wholesaler and he sells it to a reseller, retailer and then the retailer sells it to the consumer, that good is actually taxed all through the system now because it's taxed as income. Every time it changes hands, there's a profit made. So there's a tax, a tax, a tax, three taxes, and then when it's sold to you, you buy it. There's a tax on the money that you're spending. You've already paid the tax. It's taxed four times. Now, in this fair tax, I would sell it to the wholesaler. Now, he's exempt because he's a reseller, and he wouldn't pay any tax on it. He'd sell it to the retailer, and then he, you know, there'd be no tax back there. And then when the retailer sold it to the consumer, there'd be a tax by the consumer. So the good would only be taxed one time. So it would really spur the economy. Last but not least, what really makes this thing really since items are only taxed once, used things would not be taxed. So that would mean that if you didn't want to pay the big tax on buying a brand new car, and you went out and bought Johnny's car from the newspaper used, you would pay tax on it. All the used stuff that you buy would not be taxed. So it would be a big boom to the secondary markets as well. So I think the fair tax is something we need to consider. I'm not sure that it's perfect. But to your question, it's not going to happen here anytime soon. Nobody's really making that push. People are talking about it, but people have been talking about it for about 15 years now. Hi, Jack. This is Emil Bailey in Herndon, Virginia. I listen to your show on occasion. I enjoy it. But uh, one um, comment I might have is that uh, from a uh, survival standpoint, do you feel that maybe you're kind of, helping folks get queued in who otherwise might not be queued in and therefore creating more competition or scarce resources among those who've already been queued in for a while and have uh, taken preparations. Thank you. Bye. Well, um, good question, I guess. The short answer, I think, is no. And the reason I think it's no is because I think my show and other things that are raising the awareness of survivalism um, have exactly the opposite effect of creating more shortages. I think they lessen shortages. And you may wonder, well, how is that the case? Well, the reality is there aren't a whole lot of shortages right now. Right now, this is summertime, and there's plenty of plenty of stuff out there. If you want to go out and buy stuff, and with the exception of ammunition, 
We don't really have a shortage of anything a survivalist would be looking for right now. And I promise you the survival podcast is not why we have a shortage of ammunition. Barack Obama is why we have a shortage of ammunition. Uh, because people are panicked and afraid that the guy is going to take some kind of steps to, uh, to, to quash uh, you know, availability of ammunition and firearms. So people are going crazy stocking up right now. And then the shortage begats more shortage. Because what happens is people freak out and go, oh, my God, there's a shortage. So they go out and they want to buy every round of 45 auto ammo they can. And people are selling ammo, box of 45 for, you know, 100 rounds, a big box for 100 bucks now, dollar a round. That's just craziness. Um, primers are in shortages. But, again, that's Barack Obama. That's not me. And that shows you why we need more people paying attention to shows like the Survival Podcast. Because here's what happens. If people will buy, store, and, and put aside in the times of plenty, when there are shortages, then there's less pressure on the system because more people are not participating in the buying melee. So... What I'm telling you right now is if a lot of people start buying a little bit of extra food and putting it away, it's not going to strain our grocery store chains. They'll see the little 2 or 3% rise in, in overall sales. They'll adjust their delivery on demand bullshit technology to compensate for it. But then when there's a major catastrophe, all of those people who have 30 to 60 days of food put away, 30 to 60 days of supplies put away, aren't running out and, and, and going nuts at the last minute. It actually will help both sides. It'll help the preppers because there's going to be less civil disobedience and civil, you know, disarray. And it'll help the sheep because there'll be less competition out in the sheep world after the disaster hits. So I, I think that's not really something that we really need to worry about. In fact, the more survivalists we create, the more self-sufficiency create we create the less dependence on the system we create. And you have to think about the other things that I'm telling people to do, the permaculture stuff, the agriculture stuff, the savings of money, uh, building up your, your reserves, having less dependence on all the systems altogether. Every time you're less dependent on the system, you're also taxing the system less. So I think we have the exact opposite approach. But good question. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Scott from Oregon. Um, I wanted to ask you about a couple types of drills, emergency preparedness or survival type of drills. Um, one would be, uh, there, there's a couple that I, I usually think about. One is the, the bug out bag and another, another one is like for a shutdown of electro, uh, electro, ele- electrical or uh, water power. So in other words, you go out and do a bug out run, you know, go out and go camping or just go off. And the other one is you can go off, uh, you just shut off your power in your home for a set amount of time and then uh, do that type of drill. I would imagine you could probably do some variations on these types of drills, but do you have any other ideas about uh, any other types of drills that you might find useful or that you've done in the past? Thanks for the show, Jack. Bye-bye. Well, that's a great question there, Scott. And um, those are two that, that a lot of people do, and they do them for good reason because they're the things that we're most likely to have to deal with. And they're very good at showing us the holes in our preps and the holes in our plans. But the reality is you can do just about anything you want to create a drill for yourself in varying levels of comfort and discomfort. Here's what I mean. I mean, one thing you might do, and kids may not really like this idea at all, but it may be good for the whole family as well as good for the family's bank account. What if you did a one-week drill where everybody really went about their lives with school and work because it's hard to just take a week off. But the drill was simply a quarantine drill. We're drilling that we're quarantined to the home, 
at all times other than when we're at work and school. Is that real realistic? It, it may be. We may end up in that situation, but it also is, you know, kind of a way to, to soften the blow of the drill. And for a week, and I mean a seven-day week through a weekend, because that will give you two days really at home, you just don't leave the house. And you don't go to the store. And you don't, even though you're going to work, you don't stop by the store on the way home. You don't stop by Starbucks on the way to work. You just, for a week, you go on basically a shopping fast. You absolutely don't use anything that you don't have in your home for seven days. Period. Take lunch to work, um, and you eat at home. No out to eat. If you don't have something, you do without it. Just for one week. I think it'll show you a lot of places where when you think, oh, I'm going to run out and do this, and you go, I can't now, you know, where the issues are. Now, the kids may not like it because they can't go out and play and all, but, hey, you know what? Once in a while, just once in a while, having the family around, playing some games, watching some videos, whatever, just being together, you know, working in the backyard, what have you, you know, make it a time where you do things around the house, make it a home, call it a home improvement weekend. And maybe do some home improvement projects, but also be home improving the home life. That would be another one you could look at doing. And you don't have to, like, you know, jump headfirst into this stuff. If you want to do a three-day one first, you know, go ahead and do that. The thing is to be creative and figure out ways to put yourself in a situation where you have to do without things that you normally have. Camping with a bug-out bag, that's a great thing to do. But what about this one? If you have a bug-out location, and if you think that bug-out location is prepped and ready to go, um, how about you set aside a two-day trip to your bug-out location, uh, you pick a, a random uh, number of dates, only one person in the family actually chooses the actual date, and at a point in time where everybody's off work at school for two days, so a weekend, that one person makes the call and says, we're going now. Everybody grab the kids, the dogs, you know, the stuff you would bug out with, the, and the minimalist stuff you would bug out with. Not, we have a long time, we have a day to prepare for our evac, we're loading up the truck, we're loading up the trailer, we're loading, no, no, no. The quick, out-the-door evac, dogs, kids, food, bug-out bags, that's about it. And go to your bug-out location, hang out for a couple of days. Just see, is there anything you don't have? So, the, the big thing is to be creative, you know. Try uh, during the you know once your garden's producing well for two days to live on nothing but food from the garden. It'll be good for your health. You know, even if you uh, say, "Well, I'm going to live on just food for the garden and, and one serving of meat for everybody per day, or what have you." So just just all you really have to do is think, "What can I put? What can I put myself in a position to do without switching the electricity off?" That's fine, except for the fact that you might lose all the food in your refrigerator and freezer. If you have a means like a backup generator to deal with that, a better solution may be to shut off all the switches in your breaker except the ones that are running your air, your refrigerator and your freezer and say, I'm not going to be taking food out of them or I will take food out of them, what have you, but just live without the electricity for everything else in your home. Figure out ways to soften the blow to get the rest of the family on board and get creative with them and do little pieces at a time. You don't have to check everything with a drill. Develop a drill that checks one portion of your preps, and then the next time you do a drill, allow yourself to have those things because you've shored them up and you found the weaknesses and cut off something else. 
That way it'll make it more comfortable for you. And even in the Army we did this. We had varying levels of drills. Sometimes we'd get all our combat gear, get on helicopters, and fly out toward Columbia and wonder if it was real until they turned the birds around. Uh, and then there were other times all we did was everybody showed up and was present accounted for and went to an assembly and, okay, everybody was here, everybody responded, go home or go about your jobs or you're back on pass or what have you. And so if it's good enough for the military to, to vary those drills, it's good enough for us as well. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Ian calling from Toronto, Canada, also known as Call on the Forum. We've all heard a lot about purchasing metals, such as gold and silver, for a survival situation, and their use as currency. What I've heard little about is the possible use of valuable stones, such as diamonds. I think there will be some potential here, given that a precious stone, such as a diamond, is smaller, can be concealed easier, and most people are aware that there is some inherent value, unlike gold and silver, which many people rarely see in coin form anymore. Can you comment on some of the potential benefits or downsides of purchasing stones for a currency? Thanks. Ian, that's, um, and I don't mean to put down your idea or anything, but that's one of those things that, to me at least, seems like a better idea when you think about it than when you actually evaluate how practical it is. Are diamonds, rubies, sapphires, etc. worth money? Yes. Or are they possibly a good investment long term? Yes. Do they make a good currency in kind of a shit-hit-the-fan scenario? I, I don't think they do, and here's for a variety of reasons. Number one, you can have two diamonds that are both, let's say, a one-carat, round-cut diamond. One can be worth $200, and one can be worth $10,000, depending on the clarity, the cut, all that good stuff, the actual type of diamond, the source. There's so many things that a gemologist will look at and say, this stone is very rare, and then this stone has you know, imperfections in it, little pieces, flecks of carbon, things like that. Unless you actually know that, it's hard for you to take a diamond from somebody at any level of value. The other side of that is, even those things that make a, a stone worth more money because of vanity um, are, are vanity-based. So in a shit-at-the-fan scenario, do I really care that this one has the beautiful, you know, three C's or five C's or whatever, color cut and, color cut and clarity, the three C's? I really don't. Um, gold and silver, I think, have more of a tangible, historical value, and an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold. And uh, you can it's pretty easy, to, if you, even if you have to hit it with a hammer to make sure there's not lead inside it, to tell gold is gold. The same thing with silver, especially in the form of coinage. Um, I think more people are likely, I mean, there could be a problem there, you're not wrong about that, but I think more people are likely to understand that a silver quarter is 90% silver and has an intrinsic silver value, then people are to look at, let's say, a small diamond and know that it's worth, and, and how much is it worth? What's the frame of reference that most people would have? So I, I don't think it's as good for a true barter economy. Long term as an investment, it's probably not bad. It's probably no no better or worse than gold or silver. Uh, it all depends on what happens, and any time you invest in anything, you're kind of rolling the dice. So as a way to diversify your, your long-term investments and tangible assets, Probably not a bad idea, but I don't think you're going to be running around, if we ever have that real total breakdown, exchanging a diamond for you know a sack of beans, some ammunition, and some other stuff. And the other side, even if, if it, it did, a good diamond is worth so much money that it's a, a very large piece of barter 
to have in one place. It's easier to be able to be broken up in things like silver coins, for example. So that's my thoughts on that. Not really a bad idea, just maybe not not headed in the right direction with it initially. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's Joe from Vegas. Um, first of all, great job on the show. I was just wondering, you were talking about life insurance and whether people need it, and, or you were giving it as an example. And I was just wondering, if we save up enough money, do we really even need insurance like that because we'll have enough money to deal with the problem? Um, thanks again for the show. Bye. Joel, that's a great question, and the reason it's a great question is the answer is yes, and the answer is no at the same time. And here's what I mean by that. If you don't already have enough money to deal with a death, then the answer is no. If you've saved money and you have you know, a certain amount of money, but it's not enough, and that money is allocated for retirement and other things, and you don't have kind of a point at which you, you can self-insure yet, you need to continue to carry insurance. If you got to a point where you have a couple million dollars in cash stocked up and, and, and various investments and uh, you know you have a relatively small family and you've paid down your debt and you don't have any bills, and it, in that case, maybe that insurance is, is probably not necessary anymore. But for most people, I think you're talking about the twilight years of life where you go, you know what, there's enough money here to leave to my kids, to leave to my wife, and to bury me, so now I don't need to worry about insurance anymore. That's why I'm a big fan of term life insurance, because you're insuring your death. You're not you know, permanently seizing your money up into some whole life bullshit that they still use in investment when it's really a terrible investment as far as I'm concerned. So what I look at doing with people as far as my advice, and again, I'm not a financial advisor, but just my general advice on it, and what we've done is in your younger years, you're carrying something like 20- or 30-year term. It's a little more expensive than 10-year term, but it's not that much. And it, it will save you money long-term if you're going to have insurance by the time, let's say, you're 20 till you're 50. And what that will end up doing is by the time you're 50, you can go ahead and, and, and insure term again, maybe a 20-year term insuring to the age of 70 at a much reduced um, cost of, or much reduced coverage number. So if you were carrying, I don't know, just round, just made-up numbers here, half a million dollars, in life insurance for a single male between 20 and 50. At 50, by the time you get to that point, everything in your life is paid for and you don't have any debt, you don't have any bills, you're, you have a good amount of cash stored up, you may only insure yourself for the next 20 years for $50,000. Because lifestyle's covered, but you want a little bit put aside. You're just saying, hey, if I get hit by a truck tomorrow, There'll be some money here. You might insure for a hundred. It's up to you what you insure for, but you get the, the the kind of the scale there. You're going from a very large coverage in your working years, and then you're reducing your amount of coverage in your you know your your older years, 50, 60, 70 on. When insurance is more expensive, you just simply are buying less of it because you don't need as much. That can keep your premiums as long as you don't have any health problems fairly good. You also can buy term with the option to renew at the end of the term and lock in the premium, including locking in the premium per unit and reducing the coverage. So, you know, that's a question to ask your insurance agent. I'd like 20-year or 30-year renewable term with the option to reduce coverage at the renewing of the term. And uh, you might have to talk to a few different agents to find that, but that's probably the solid way to do it. Um Again, just saving the money until the money's there, you don't have it. And you're, you're banking on the fact that you're going to be continuing to earn it, which you can't do if you're dead. So I do think that 
most people, at least under the age of 50, need to be carrying a significant amount of life insurance, at least at minimum two years salary, if not three. So that's just my view. Uh, again, I reserve the right to be wrong. People can do what they want with that information. But I know that I don't want, if I die, leave my family hung out to dry and, and not have a way to, uh, to take care of things going forward and at least make sure that every debt uh, that we would still have is covered and the ability to maintain a lifestyle for a few years and figure out how to adjust is maintained as well. Hi, Jack. I just figured I'd share a little anecdote with you today. I am about to go pick up a new pickup truck, but uh, I just wanted to share this with you. So I walk into the bank, and I, you know, I've had money in the bank for quite some time, and I go to make a withdrawal of eighty-two hundred. You know, found a nice, nice pickup truck, very low miles. I'm going to go pay in cash, obviously, so that I can chew this guy down to like next to nothing when he sees a bunch of green bills. Um, but anyway, so I go to make the withdrawal, and they they run verification and make phone calls and they're very very nervous in the bank um and i guess the point is uh they didn't have the money (laughs) they did not have enough well they had enough they didn't want to give me that much because i pretty much cleared out the reserve i only withdrew eight thousand dollars so at any given time this particular branch usually doesn't have more than ten thousand dollars on hand for the whole day so I pretty, <laughs> I screwed their day all up. But that's just something good to know. They were very concerned. In the future, they uh, they asked me for at least a week and a half's notice. So um, apparently, if I want my money from the bank, I need to give a week and a half notice. Uh, it was just pretty interesting. I figured you could uh, use that for ammo in your podcast. Um, I, I don't know. I usually don't deal with large transactions like that. But in a time from emergency, it would you know be good to know that the bank only has or some branches only have ten thousand dollars on hand in cash that's your what your branch has so even if there isn't a crisis and you're federally reserved they have ten thousand dollars to hand out so emergency situation i could see that the money the cash would be cleared out even if there were plenty of other resources so um Uh, Just food for thought, and uh, love the show. Have a great day. I can actually back that up, that that's that's something that can happen. It wasn't 10,000, but I actually was at our bank, one of our branches, and uh, a couple came in. I don't know what they were doing, but and the bank practices really weren't very good because I knew that they needed to withdraw around $14,000 in cash they were looking for, and they didn't have it. They just could not handle giving these people $14,000 out of this branch. Now, to be fair to them, it was about an hour from closing on a Saturday. So it would be a lot more likely for that to be the case at that point. They called another branch and verified that the, the other branch could take care of it for them. And they sent them a couple of miles up the road, and they went up there to get their money, which, again, I think was bad bank practices because if I'd been a bad guy, I just profiled these people are going to get fourteen grand in cash. I can just leave this bank and tail them and wait. To, I mean, I thought it was terrible, and uh, we did say something to the bank about their practices there. But to your point, yeah, they didn't have the money to be able to handle fourteen thousand. So if you can't handle fourteen thousand to one person, well, you can't handle a thousand to fourteen people. I think it has a lot to do with the size of the branch and how many people they serve. Because what they do is they keep money there based on the averages. 
So one person coming in with a large transaction can kind of, you know, jack that up a bit. This is a big reason that I say to keep at least a few thousand dollars in cash in a strong box, a safety deposit box, buried in a coffee can in the backyard. Uh, that's my last choice. I really don't advise you to do that, but whatever makes you comfortable, whatever you have to do to put a few thousand dollars away in cash that you can get your hands on, I really suggest you do it because it's absolutely the case uh, that during a major disaster, there is not going to be the money that you need at the bank. It is going to dry out. The ATMs will dry out quickly. How many times have you seen like a, a big event happen in a downtown area, and then people start hitting the ATM, and the ATM gets tapped out within an hour, even with limits on withdrawal sites? So it's, 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 it's just a fact of life that we have to deal with today, and it's one of the things that we have to do as part of our preps, have cash available. Um, another side of that is, well, why is that the case so much? Well, it's the case so much because we use so much electronic money now. There's only about... I think it's a, it's less than one-third. If you take the M3 money supply, which is all the money that exists in the United States, uh, in U.S. currency, not just in the United States, but inside our country, outside our country, credit default swaps, every dollar that exists is part of our money supply. There's less than a third of it that's actually in paper. So all the money can't be put in one place in paper. So that's another reason that you need to, again, make allowances to have some sort of cash available for a disaster. Good call, good point. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Chrissy here from Wyoming. I found your show about three weeks ago. I'm addicted. Thanks for all the great information. My husband and I are prepper newbies. We pulled our heads out of the sand just a few months ago thanks to two books, The Long Emergency and Jim Rawls' Patriots, and we're continuing our crash course in waking up. My question is twofold. First, what influenced you to become a prepper? A friend, a book? Was it your upbringing or some kind of event? And second, besides spreading the word about your show, of course, what are some other resources or things that we can share with our friends and family to begin to ease them into the survivalism mentality in hopes of getting them on board? Thanks, and keep up the great work. First, uh, wow, great call. Great great uh, call-in voice. If you ever want to do a podcast, I'll tell you what, you got the voice for it there. Um, on your questions, the two-fold questions, number one, what got me into prepping? I actually did an entire episode called A Trip Back Through Time. I'll put a link to it in today's show notes so you can have and listen to it. And it just talks about how I grew up in rural Pennsylvania uh, in my teenage years, uh, going to school and, and helping out with the garden and, uh, and being part of really what was still a homestead even in the 80s uh, in, in a lot of ways with a, a lot of self-sufficiency, a lot of independence, with elderly grandparents that were trying to keep some of the old ways alive and, and with supporting the local community and uh, it wasn't a religious thing. It's not like I, I'm part of LDS or anything like that. Not anything against them, but it was just a way of life where I grew up. Is what I'm trying to say. That was independent of of your religious or cultural background. There, were, uh, my family's Ukrainian. There were a lot of Irish in the area. It was a coal region. Uh, there were Catholics. There were Protestants. There were there were Orthodox. There were every kind of religion you could imagine, every kind of background you could imagine, but it was common across the, the spectrum that everybody uh, that, that lived, you know, at least outside of the two little towns that were in the area and had their little plots kind of took care of themselves in, in that way. And, you know, hunting is a, it wasn't just a pastime. It was something you did to get meat. Um, to this day, the schools are closed on the first day of deer season where I grew up. So that's that was the growing up part. And then the other thing is, I spent a lot of time in the military, two and a half years, and uh, I spent six of those six months out of those two and a half years in a place called the Agwan River Valley in Honduras. And I got to th- see how people live that have to do without. And those two things put an impression on me, and uh, that never went away. Now I did my little uh, almost a decade 
of lollygagging, as we called it in the military, where I really didn't pay attention to this stuff much. We always had a little bit of extra food, a little bit of water around, um, things like that. And uh, but I, I went and pursued the corporate, you know, American dream and built up the big income and the big credit card debt like everybody else in America. Y2K happened. I watched people freak out. I thought they were idiots because I thought they were, you know, thinking the toaster was going to explode or something like that. But I also said, you know what, they're bringing up some good points, and it started to remind me of things. And, and by the time 9/11 came around, I really had gotten to the point where um, I've got to be not just about preps, but I've got to be more about my family. Uh, I was traveling. Uh, I was probably gone 20 days a month. I was never home. I'd come back home, and my son would be taller than when I left. And I decided it was time to start growing a garden, start growing the family. And uh, when I mean grow the family, I don't mean having more kids. I mean start nurturing and growing the relationships in the family. And I pulled myself off the road, and I went and made a complete career shift, cut my income to maybe a third of what it was to be able to do that, moved my family back down to Texas, started doing things the right way, putting my life back together, building up the survivalism that I knew as a kid, and uh, today we are more prepared than we've ever been in, in, at any time in history, and within the next year, we'll be in a completely, uh, I'd say, 70-80% to self-sufficiency model, and uh, it, it all started, though, with what was planted in my roots as a kid back there in rural Pennsylvania. So that's kind of the, the long story made short as I can. On your question is what are other great resources, I think that the biggest thing you can do to get the uninitiated kind of thinking about being preppers is to not push the world survivalist on them too much. I'd call my show the Survival Podcast because what people were looking for, and that was a marketing move. Um, if I was trying to attract people that weren't already interested, I would probably call it um, you know, something like, uh, I don't even know, I never really even thought about it, but I would stay away from using that term too much with people until they're ready for it, and the best resources that you can give them are Fox News, um, MSNBC, anything you find on Google News, credible sources. Here's why. When it comes from you, it's like the old saying in the Bible that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Uh, this is going to be seen perfectly when a husband tries to teach his wife how to shoot and says, you're doing this or that, and she insists she isn't. You get her a professional coach. She learns to shoot right away because the husband can't be right, but this guy must be right. The closer you are to somebody, when it comes to an area of disagreement, the harder it is to accept their point of view. When you take and you defer off to credible third parties like a news source, um, there's a lot more believable, a lot more meat and potatoes behind it. And if you just start searching Google News every day, because a lot of my show topics come from doing that, for things like food shortages, natural disasters, flu pandemics and things like that and start just dripping a little bit of this information say look I know you're not totally on board with this but here's just another example of why we want to make sure that we're prepared if something goes wrong and I think then the other thing to do is break it down along threat probabilities for them to a place that they'll understand Look, I understand that you don't think peak oil is really going to be a problem in our lifetime. I get that. I understand that you don't think the entire United States economy could break down. I get that. We don't have to agree about that. But do you agree that tomorrow morning you might lose your job? Or one of the two uh, people in the household would become uh, very, very uh, uh, you know, disabled, injured, sick, or dead. Anything like that. Make it personal and say these these very you know things that are awful to think about, but highly probable job loss, illness, anything else like that. Um, you could go ahead and uh, 
You know, what would you do? Just ask that question. What would you do? Uh, let's say we had a big storm around here and you just lost power for a week. What would you do? Let's say that uh, this flu thing comes back around in the fall and it is worse this time. It's not, oh my God, everybody's not, but it's bad enough that they say everybody stay in your home for two weeks. What would you do? So use real world events. Don't necessarily say we'll go to survivalist boards or the survival podcast or anything like that. Take these, these, these credible sources and just point them out and say to people, hey, look, here's something that's really out there. If it did happen, what would you do? That'll get them thinking. And, and this is one of the things you're going to hear. Well, maybe we'd just come stay with you. And you want that question today, not when the problem occurs. Because today you can look them square in the eye and say, you know what, we would love to take you in. But if it was anything that was anything, you know, that was going to be uh, more than a few days, it was a long-term true shit at the fan scenario, we're prepared, but we're not that prepared. Even if we were let you stay with us, you have to be able to bring something to contribute. Do you have anything to contribute? I would hate to turn you away, but we may have to. I'm telling you this now because that day could come. When you put people in touch with reality, they start to realize how exposed they are. It was amazing how many people we know that when the article ran about the show that I'm doing, they knew about the show, they knew about what we did, they would talk to us about it once in a while, but they really didn't care, they thought it was kind of crazy, but the article ran in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and people started asking deeper questions, well, exactly, what do you do, how do you do, you know, listen to the show is what I would say to them, because I have a show for them to listen to, but even the people that are close to me didn't really buy into it, unless they were there on their own already, until that article ran in the paper. That made it real for people. So that's why I'm saying I think it's a really good source for you got to send people to are these third-party credible news sources. So with that, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. This has been a long one, but whenever I do these call-in shows, I try to cram in probably one or two more calls than I should just because I don't get to do them enough. Again, I'm really working hard to try to get to a point where we can do more shows like this in the future. One way you can help me with that is if you're not already a member of the Member Support Brigade, uh, consider joining. You'll be supporting the show at about 25 cents an episode. If you think these shows are worth a quarter an episode, consider doing that. You'll also get exclusive content available only to members if you do that. Uh, such as, we just did a video while we were away on some kind of, on a, I guess I'd call it like a gorilla uh, permaculture technique and uh, hopefully we'll be putting that video together today and getting it up for the members by the end of today if not it'll be sometime this week and we're going to be doing the, uh, the the highly requested tour of our garden here in Texas as well uh, pretty soon uh, I've been trying to hold off on that so there's a little bit more production going on but I think it'd be a good mid-level update so we'll try to do that as well again this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or anything they know doesn't matter cause it all gets spent